Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today we're going to talk about performance and bonuses. So performance appraisals, year-end reviews, bonus payments, you know, grading, those grading distributions that rank you on a one to five scale where only 10% of the population gets to be at the high end. Those things take an awful lot of time from a lot of people and they cost a lot of money. And if I think about all the people that I interact with in any given year, either somebody I'm coaching or somebody that I'm working in a training program with, I honestly can't think of anyone who's ever happy with the progress. And that depends regardless on how well they're rated or how well they're paid. It seems that everyone is frustrated, disappointed, and often disengaged as a result. Okay, maybe one or two people are happy, but that tends to only last for a couple of days. So one of the questions we want to explore today is why do we do these things? And should we change the system? And if so, is there a better solution? And just a heads up, a better solution than team bonuses. So with me today is Peter Wright. Peter's a global executive who's led a number of HR functions for some of the world's best-known companies. And he's been in senior HR positions in companies such as Zurich Insurance, AIG, Estee Lauder, Merrill Lynch, BP, Allied Demec, and Unilever. And he's highly skilled in leading those organizations and their executive teams through some significant changes, such as major growth, a crisis in a business transformation, many mergers and acquisitions, divestitures, a lot of restructuring, organizational transformation, and public offering. Now, since 2014, Peter has been working as a consultant, initially with Acorn Strategy Consultant and then subsequently with Leadership Forum, and he is certainly an expert in a number of people and organizational issues, including strategic workforce planning, integrated talent management, and performance management. So, a perfect opportunity for us to talk about this lovely thing, performance and bonuses. So, Peter, welcome to the show. Wanda, thank you. It's a pleasure to be back on the show. Yes, and it's a repeat performance, but that's a good thing. Um, So uh, let's just start at the top. So for people who are not familiar with the lingo, we often use the word performance management. But performance management includes a whole collection of things from mid-year review to year-end reviews to this rating that's usually on some sort of a forced distribution curve, bonus payments, and then, of course, the setting of targets for the next year. And most companies that I deal with, have their own process with all of those elements. Now, Peter, do you agree that everyone, well, almost everyone, is frustrated or not? Um, yes, I do. Um, in fact, performance appraisal is, is an enigma. Um, the way we have done it today, the way we do it today and the way we've done it, frankly, for the last 50-odd years has hardly changed. The process, the systems, the overall framework look remarkably the same today as they did back in the 1970s. And yet, in the last 10 years, when one looks at all the surveys that measure how, how frustrated or otherwise people are about it, what you find is CEOs are very unhappy uh, about the time it takes, about the stress it causes in their organizations, and quite frankly, about the lack of evidence to show that it really adds value to a company's performance. Um, line managers are frustrated because they're invited to participate in this process, and yet what they find is more often than not their views about gradings and the actual allocation of bonuses is then taken out of their hands. Uh, and of course, the poor, poor old HR function who bears the burden of ownership feels the frustration maybe more than anyone. Uh, and indeed, it's interesting that if one averages out the results of the surveys of HR professionals in, say, the last 10 years, about 60% of HR functions rate their performance appraisal system within their company as either average or below average. Wow, 60% would rate as average or below average. Wow. 
I was um, just talking today with a, a company who will rename Mainless, who is just finishing up their year-end performance review at this moment in time. And, of course, everybody's running around scrambling, trying to get those last-minute things you know, signed off and entered on the system and so on, so much so that it's hard for anybody to focus on anything else. You have to worry about that in terms of the value that it really generates, especially if it leads people being so unhappy. All right, so Peter, if there's all this unhappiness, why do we do them? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I think the key to understanding the unhappiness uh, is, first of all, not just to appreciate the unhappiness about performance appraisal itself, but the fact that it affects more employees than any other process within an organization. So uh, I think people would be unhappy even if performance appraisal would, could somehow be stood alone from everything else. But the fact is talent acquisition, total rewards, succession planning, and career development all feed off performance appraisal to some degree or another. So the, the first thing is not just about the, the, the system itself, but about the knock-on effects. I think increasingly, and this is remarkable, quite frankly, it hasn't happened before, is people are beginning to understand the cost of this. So forget the return on investment, which was the point I made earlier, but simply the cost of this. So we've looked at a number of organizations who shared with us what they believe it takes to run this system. And, if, and it seems that most people come out at around uh, an average of about 20 to 30 hours per person per annum. Um, it, it obviously varies depending on the comprehensiveness of your appraisal system. But if you average out 30 hours per person to do this in a business of 20,000 people and a cost per hour of, let's say, 50 pounds per hour, and remember, the cost is the cost to the company of employing the person. It's not the cost of their annual salary averaged out on an hourly basis. Um, then you come up with some very big numbers. Um, and remember, the majority of those hours are done by the more senior people. By definition, the more people you have report to you, the more hours you're going to do. So even in a business of 20,000 people, you can very quickly get up into the areas of 20 or, or 30 million pounds per annum. Um, if you go to some of the big banks, for instance, where you would expect the the uh, pay per hour to be higher and, and work on the assumption of 30 hours at a much higher rate and say 100,000 employees, uh, believe it or not, you're up into the two or even 300 million pound per hour rate just to administer your performance appraisal system. Um, and, and as I said earlier, it's remarkable that it's only now that people are beginning to think about this because this came about as a result of somebody uh, doing this in a Deloitte report in 2007. Um, and since then, people have started to sit down and work out uh, just exactly what it costs. So I think, you know, if, we, if people were not unhappy already, they certainly will be based on uh, some of the realization around some of these costs. That's a huge, like 200 to 300 million pounds per year is an astronomical number. Even, you know, the 20 to 30 million pounds a year is an astronomical number for something that makes everybody so unhappy. You started that calculation by saying it takes about 20 to 30 hours per person per year. So how do you get that number? What goes into that that constitutes that many hours per person? Um. So essentially, if you follow the performance appraisal system as it should be done, uh, clearly there is the target selling process, which you mentioned in your introduction, um, and that's either done on the basis of individuals who are asked to set their own targets, or they're done in conjunction with their boss, or frankly, their line manager sets them for them. Um, and if you think about that, take once again this 20,000-person business. If the average number of individual targets that are required for bonus purposes is up at around three or five targets per person, and that's quite modest compared to what some companies do, then you've got to create 60 to 100,000 individual targets uh, before you can sign off on the process. So first you have the actual target setting process. Then what you should have, obviously, if the process is doing well, 
is some form of quarterly review. It's quite often the case that the target setting process goes beyond the first quarter, so sometimes the first quarter doesn't count because uh, you're still setting the targets, but certainly you have a review in the second quarter and the third quarter. Um, and then obviously you have the year end where you will often have a conversation about your performance. Sometimes companies uh, split up the meeting so you have a separate conversation about uh, compensation and then you might have a further conversation about performance and succession planning implications of what's going to happen. So it's quite easy on that basis to see how uh, even for someone who is not, uh, doesn't have anyone reporting to them, how you can ratchet up those hours very quickly. Once you have someone who has maybe 10, 20 people or 30 people reporting to them, it's very easy to see how you, you get to an average of 30 hours per person. And as I said earlier, the significance of that is it's the higher paid and more senior people uh, who clearly do the most number of hours in the company. Well, that makes sense because you think about there's all sorts of calibration exercises that we do to make sure we're rating it consistently. And then I have to write some letters and enter that usually into some system. And then somebody has to read them and there has to be some review. And then often, you know, senior management weighs in. There's there's a whole lot of behind the scenes that makes this sort of come together. All right. So we have a system that just about every company, I well, every company I know does. We have no one's really happy with it. We have CEOs don't think it adds value. We have HR thinks that it's below average or average at best. We have that it costs an astronomical amount of money and it's taking a huge amount of time from our senior most people. I come back to why do we do them? Uh, Well, let me tell you what the stated reasons are, and what's remarkable about the stated reasons in our study is that they are remarkably consistent. They're consistent across industries, they're consistent across geography, and they've been consistent over time. So the reasons I'm about to share with you are the reasons that companies would have given you 20 or 30 years ago. So the first one that's trotted out is uh, the performance appraisal system is is meant to play a major part in aligning um, the business strategy with individual and team performance within the business. Um, the degree to which that happens, quite frankly, uh, some people are highly skeptical about, and it's often more about the degree to which there is a legitimate business strategy that can be interpreted down to the level of you know every person in my 20,000-person business seriously being able to understand it at the level at which they're meant to and generate five individual targets from it. But alignment with business, business strategy is still if not the top reason, certainly one of the top two. Um, It's a means of judging the performance of of employees. So there are people who advocate that they want to judge that performance and they want to grade people almost irrespective of any other uh, consideration. Um, It's obviously therefore also a process for identifying potential. Um, And and it's one of those things, as I said earlier, that feeds into succession planning. It's a means of identifying learning and development skills as you go along. Um, And although, as I said, some of the evidence is lacking, there are people that argue that it's meant to um, contribute to the overall performance of the company. But... The the truth of the matter is, just parking all of those reasons, the overwhelming reason why it is done in the way it is done in most companies is that it is there to find a fair and equitable means of distributing bonuses. Um, and And why we say that is because part of our study was actually consciously to go and look at organizations that don't have bonuses. Um, And some of the findings were, in fact, quite remarkable. So we looked at the armed forces, we looked at hospitals, we looked at government workers, at charities, emergency responders, and the like. There are actually much more, there are many more organizations than we maybe believe uh, who don't actually have bonuses at all, but who actually perform to as high a level as any normal corporation does. And most of those organizations have exactly the same challenges. So interestingly enough, they will tell you that they have to 
try and align with business strategy. They have to find a means of, of judging performance. Although, interestingly enough, if there's no need for, for bonuses, many of those organizations don't actually grade people. Um, and then clearly they have to identify learning development needs and so on. Um, and what was quite uh, profound for us around this was the fact that um, the absence of bonuses actually allows them to be significantly more flexible in the way in which they run their performance appraisal. And if you like, they try and honor the, uh, the, the reasons why they do it in the first place. So I'll give you a very simple example. Um, if, you, if you have a business strategy and it's declared and you are in a company that doesn't have bonuses, what tends to happen is in the period of time where most corporations are sat down trying to identify and agree 60 to 100,000 individual targets, what businesses without bonuses do is simply sit down in their natural groups, be those functions or business units or regions, and say to themselves, okay, so what does that mean for us in terms of how we need to do our job both individually and collectively? And the beauty of that is, first of all, it encourages a collective view in a way that setting up individual targets doesn't. And most importantly in today's environment, what it also does is it gives flexibility. So for instance, if your strategy changes halfway through the year, um, it's very easy to move the emphasis of your strategy if you haven't had to go through the process of 60 to 100,000 individual targets. And in fact, what's interesting about our study is that not once have we ever found a business who set, say, 100,000 individual targets, their strategy subsequently changed, and they then sat and created a different set of 100,000 targets, which you know raises the issue as to what degree uh, bonuses or the activities that are driven by bonuses are really as flexible as they need to be in the kind of business world in which we operate now. Okay. So you're arguing then that this notion, I'm going to leave bonuses aside for a minute, that this notion of setting targets, which is everybody has their five targets, and that means that if you meet those targets, that's my basis for grading on whether you've done a good job and therefore paying you an extra bonus or not. But that target setting, doing that target setting is undermining both flexibility or agility, especially adjusting to the marketplace or adjusting to changes. And I think you said it's undermining collaboration. Did I hear that right? Yes. In fact, it goes further than that. Um, so the challenge if you have a bonus, and anyone that's done this will, you know, this, they'll, they'll recognize this immediately, is you've somehow, first of all, got to uh, work out how much money you have in your bonus pool. So what traditionally people have done and the way bonuses are done in almost every company is that you have what is often referred to as a forced distribution curve. So irrespective of how your business performs in absolute terms, the, the underlying uh, theory behind this is that the company forces the business, forces like managers to make a relative judgment. And the force distribution curve in almost all businesses is essentially what we call the 10-80-10 rule. In other words, 10% of your workforce, relatively speaking, can be outstanding. 80% are average and 10% of the bottom are either in need of some form of remedial uh, effort or in some cases may be invited to leave. Now, you know, the very fact that there is a force distribution curve uh, is for many people a problem. And, and maybe the best way of describing that problem is to literally quote what a CEO said to me recently. So a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a CEO who's just in the process of taking over. And he sat down and he asked his chief human resources officer, do we have a performance appraisal system? The answer, yes. Do we use a uh, force distribution curve? The answer is yes. It's a 10-80-10. The next question he asked the chief human resources officer is, by chance, do we have an employee engagement process? And the chief of human resources said, yes, we do. And we spend about four million pounds per, per annum on it. So which the CEO basically said, why? And the point he was making was, um, if we start on the 1st of January by saying to our employees, irrespective of what you do, irrespective of how engaged you are, and irrespective of what you achieve, 90% of you are only going to be deemed average or below average. Why would we waste money on an employee engagement survey? Now, 
you know, the GHRO tried to rescue the situation by saying to his boss, well, people are engaged in, in ways which go beyond just bonuses, to which the CEO said, fine, I'll take your word for that. I'll also remind you of that on the 31st of December when we're trying to sort out bonuses. Um, and therefore, with, before one even goes to all the other issues which cause such emotion around bonuses, one begins to see this kind of fundamental contradiction. Um, so if you look at, for instance, a team of, let's say, take a team of 40 people. Um, if a team of 40 people has worked together in the whole year and has done an exceptional job, the truth of the matter is in December of that year, applying the 10-80-10 rule, four people now need to be singled out to be outstanding. 32 people will be average, and four people, despite the fact the team worked well, still need to be put in the bottom 10%. Um, and this is the thing that causes the most consternation, particularly from a collaboration point of view. So everything that you have achieved in that previous 11 months uh, is now put in question. Um, for the four people who are put in the top 10%, they're going to be happy. For the 32 others in the average piece, they're going to look at the top four and say, uh, well, that's simply not fair. We all pulled our weight. We all did our best. Why should four people be singled out? Um, and of course, the, the implication is that wait till next year when that 40 people sit down and see where the collaboration and cooperation and agile working is done the same way based on how bonuses were decided in that year. And of course, most importantly, there are four people who did the best they could in that team of 40 who need to be put in the bottom 10%. Um, so you have a system which, by the very fact that you force relative judgment, and that judgment, by the way, is forced down to quite low levels in the organization, so a group of 40 would not be unusual, uh, and a number to need to be divided into the 10-80-10 rule, you can see now why all of a sudden it flies in the face of so many other things that we hold uh, important to us in terms of the way organizations operate. It's interesting. One of my colleagues, Phil Hodgson, here in the UK, has said that target setting is the single most important thing to undermine collaborative team performance. Because the moment I have my target and my performance is evaluated against my target, then I'm going to do that little bit more on my agenda forget what the rest of you need or forget flexibility or forget anything else. I'm just going to drive to my target and it kills um, team, true team collaboration and it kills uh, collaboration in general, as you have just outlined and the force distribution curve makes it even worse. So now Peter, this was, you know, I know there are a lot of people who've written about this and talked about team bonuses. So this is the solution here. We have the team is all evaluated as a team. We evaluate your contribution of the team and we pay the team's bonus as a team. Is that a solution that's going to work? <laughs> well, so obviously a lot of people try to get around the 100,000 example by saying, well, set everybody team bonuses. The truth of the matter is actually, a lot, if you understand a lot of businesses and a lot of industries, quite a lot of their work doesn't lend itself to working in teams. The truth of the matter is there are lots of uh, work, that, there's lots of work that we do, which is actually better done by individuals. So first of all, what you wouldn't want to get into is a situation where you now start to force people to set team goals, which are not natural. But even assuming you could lower the total number of goals set by having a mix of team and individual, the problem you have about teams is they're still subject to a 10-80-10 rule. So even if you decide to, to uh, treat everyone within a team the same way, so you don't get into that uh, you know, 10-80-10 split I referred to earlier in a team of 40, it doesn't alter the fact that you still have to hit the 10-80-10 rule across all the teams in the organization. So uh, if you think it was difficult to judge uh, individuals and, and how you put them in a 10-80-10, now try and sit and review a few hundred team, teams across the business and how would you even start to compare how those teams were formed relative to each other so that they still fit into the 10-80-10 uh, split. So, yes, I mean, the fact of the matter is uh, we've never come across an organization that solely does individual targets. We've never come across an organization that only does team targets. 
tasks. But the fact is that a mix of the two probably lowers the total number of targets that you set as a company as a whole. It doesn't change the difficulty of making this 10-80-10 judgment at the end of the year. I can see this um, in that if you were, even if you could get the team evaluation and everything done, it doesn't alter the fact that I need to do succession planning. So even on that team of 10, 20, 30, 40, one or two are going to be singled out to be the people with potential and the potential successors. And that now starts to cause a problem in terms of the team collaboration. That's true. And there's, there's one other thing I would want to point out, which is also very important, is, is, which is this idea that the work we do on bonuses disproportionately affects the performance of a company. So if you think about businesses that go through major transformations, certainly the ones I've gone through, what you'll find is that the CEO who understands business transformation will probably say to about 70% of the company, all we need you to do is just carry on doing your job. 30% of us will deal with the whole change management piece. But if we do the transformation successfully, there's no point in us doing it if in the meantime, the 70% of you who should be running the business haven't done that and we don't have a successful business to either continue running or to sell. The, tr- the same is also true. The principle is true about bonuses. Uh, so the first problem you have is that within the context of, uh, say, functional people doing bonuses, if you sit down with most functional people and say, please tell me what your individual targets are, what you'll find is you take the HR function, they are things like improve talent acquisition, uh, overhaul the succession planning process. Uh, take a look at how we might do total rewards different. The fact is that those targets are actually part of their job description. And I think there's a growing body of people that say, we're now creating um, bonus targets, either on an individual or, or team basis, just for the sake of giving of creating bonus targets. In other words, we're essentially paying people twice to do the same work. Um, that, I think, is another you know, realization that's coming about in terms of the, the impact that we've always believed that's caused by people doing their bonus targets well is not as disproportionately successful in organizations as the idea that everyone just does their job properly. Uh, and on that basis, the company performs well. The other thing, by the way, is there is also growing evidence, and this is easy to prove, that even if 100,000 people were all to achieve their individual targets, it doesn't mean the business does well. So in other words, unfortunately, um, this idea that 100,000 people all achieving a target or a group of targets somehow guarantees that the business will do well is just not realistic. Um, And, you know, there are a growing number of businesses who find themselves in this situation where the vast majority of their individuals do deliver on their targets and the company ends up either not being profitable or certainly not in a position to pay out on the bonus pool to anything like the degree that was inferred at the beginning of the year if everyone achieved their targets. And that's becoming, I think, an increasingly difficult thing for CEOs to explain to employees and not surprisingly uh, diminishes any enthusiasm they might have for either that year or any future year's worth of uh, setting bonus targets. I certainly hear this among my clients all the time is that, you know, everybody I talk to in an organization has had an amazing year. They've performed by any metric you want to measure the performance by, yet as you roll it all up for the organization, it hasn't achieved the success you want and there isn't money to pay bonuses. And somehow that just doesn't sit well. Okay, so Peter, we're going to have to take a break, but I, I think if we haven't depressed everybody, we've come close. So the notion here is that all this time and effort that we spend on evaluating performance, ranking performance, rating performance, setting company targets, and paying bonuses cost, you know, 20 million a year, 20 million pounds a year, 300 million pounds a year, depending upon the size of the company. So think on average 20 hours per person per year, and often that's your most expensive people doing it. And then no one's happy with it, regardless what you do. And then we end up with this notion of hundreds of thousands of targets if everybody has five. So 
And then those individual targets don't necessarily line up to what we need to do from a flexibility or from a collaboration. It's just fraught with problems. So we're going to take a break. And the important part is when we come back from break, we're going to talk about, so what else can we do? We'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. If you are interested in the business of rental equipment, be sure to check out Rental Equip Talk Radio with host Donald Charbonnet. We talk to some of the top names in the rental industry, as well as cover topics that include safety, training, fleet management, legal issues, and more. We'll also cover the history and future of the rental equipment industry. Rental Equip Talk Radio can be heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Peter Wright. Peter has been a global executive and uh, led a lot of HR functions in a broad range of companies from Zurich Insurance, AIG, Estee Lauder, Merrill Lynch, BP, Allied Demac, and Unilever. And he's led those organizations and their executive teams through a whole raft of growth, business transformation, crises, mergers and acquisitions, divestitures, restructuring, organizational transformation, and even public offerings. So he has certainly seen the gambit of what can happen in large corporations and is um, quite skilled in understanding what it takes to lead the people and the organization through all these issues that drive performance at the end of the day. So and we've just been talking about performance management and what's wrong with it. And there's a whole raft of stuff that's wrong with it. So, Peter, I hope you have an answer to this one. Is there a better solution? Um, there is. Um, and quite frankly, and maybe surprisingly, um, it's not overly complex from a technical point of view. It's really about mindset and changing the mindset. So if you go back to what I said earlier about those businesses that don't have bonuses as part of their total reward, uh, I think what they do is quite compelling in terms of performing. Um, they do a performance appraisal process, but they make it work for them in a much more proactive uh, and altogether collaborative way than businesses that do have a bonus. So the reality is at the end of the day, however, corporations work on bonuses and therefore we have to find a way of dealing with the bonuses. So if you believe that, as we do, that bonuses do not have 
um, the disproportionate effect on how businesses perform as we have been led to believe, then you can set up your company differently on day one. So what you do is you basically start by saying the business at the top of the business, the senior managing executive, will set a series of targets for the business. They can either be all financial, obviously one of them has to be profitability, or they can be more on a balanced scorecard approach. So you can put in customer service, organizational effectiveness, you know, whatever you want. But essentially, uh, on the 1st of January, the business extracts from the strategy uh, a set of targets which they believe are realistic and which they believe would justify the payment of bonuses. The next thing you do is you go to everyone in the organization, you simply send them a letter and say, you know what your bonus target is. It's a percentage of your base salary, um, and that's obviously in everyone's contract, so everyone who is entitled to a bonus knows what their bonus target is. And the simple premise is that from there on, you can now behave as if you were a business that doesn't have bonus targets. In other words, there is no need to go out and create a series of either individual or team targets. You behave like a business that doesn't have bonus targets. So you look at the targets the business has set you, and you sit and collaborate and work out how best to achieve those. If those targets move during the year due to a fast-moving environment, then you can move accordingly. Because now the emphasis is not on the idea that, first of all, we have to have a 1080 split at all, or indeed that somehow bonuses um, enhance the performance of a company to a much greater degree than everyone simply doing their job. The fact of the matter is, the argument is that if everybody simply does their job, then the business has the best opportunity of achieving the targets that they've set themselves. Now, what's remarkable, if you can get to that mindset, is that then what starts to happen is people actually talk to each other far more frequently than otherwise is the case. Uh, it's just part of... Now, that may need to be taught, by the way. You know, one of the problems that we haven't mentioned around performance appraisal and how it's done is that quite often, quite frankly, businesses just don't teach their line managers how to do it. But on the assumption that that has been done, this now encourages people to talk to each other more frequently. Uh, there's no need for someone to... Uh, to suffer relative to somebody else, which clearly encourages collaboration. There, the emphasis now on learning and development and the development of the person, because the year-end discussion now is not a negotiation about where am I on the 10-80-10 split and therefore what kind of um, bonus am I going to get. Um, the, the problem with it is, and I'll be quite candid because clearly we've talked to companies about this, is a concern that if somehow you don't pay the top 10% a disproportionately high bonus, then they will leave. Um, the truth of the matter is we don't know whether that's the case because despite the fact we're quite a long way down the road in talking to some companies who'd like to embrace this new idea, we have no evidence to suggest that that's the case. What we would argue, uh, and this is easy to prove, is that even if you do pay your top 10% excessively high bonuses at the expense of all the other people in the organization, it certainly doesn't guarantee that they're going to stay. Um, to the point where actually, ironically enough, executive search people hover around the sort of the front door of organizations at the end of February, safe in the knowledge that if they want someone in that organization to move, they just have to wait until that person is paid their bonus and then they are free to move. So we would accept in putting this concept forward that it does require a leap of faith but what we would argue, if you sit down and think it through in the way that we would encourage you and not have a sort of financial knee-jerk reaction to it, that it manages to achieve many of the pluses that organizations achieve that don't have bonuses uh, with, quite frankly, very few downsides. It's interesting. I can imagine a manager is listening to this and saying, you know, in some ways, the 10-80-10 distribution split, that ranking that you get at the end of the year, is a, a stick that a manager holds over an employee 
that says, if you don't do what I need you to or what I ask you to or a little bit harder, longer hours or whatever, then you're going to be on the wrong side of this distribution curve. But it's a stick as opposed to a carrot because the carrot can only go for 10% of the population. It can't make everybody else happy. So you sort of have to believe that managers have something else to work with than a stick. What's your view on that? Well, yeah, this is an interesting one, because if you look at the concept of leadership, and remember I said earlier that performance appraisal does impact other things, the same that same concept underpins what we have believed about leadership for a long time. So there is a, you know, the, the prevalent thought on leadership for probably the last 20 years has been a concept called the top 100. It's a generic title that's applied to the most senior people in the organization. Um, so it doesn't matter how many there are in absolute terms. But what businesses do is they put a disproportionate amount of investment into those senior leaders in the belief that what they teach those people will naturally cascade down through the organization. Now, you know, without getting too sidelined into a debate about leadership, what we know is that, that frankly, that just doesn't work. Um, and therefore, this issue around stick and carrot, I think, does impact leadership as well. Um, and that's why... What we're now talking about, we like because it is a holistic approach to a lot of other issues, which are spin-offs from, from performance appraisal. We would argue that if we were having this debate about leadership, businesses today cannot rely on just 100 people at the top of the organization running their business. They're only as strong as the weakest point in their organization. Yes, it helps if you have some very clever people at the top of your organization, uh, but it's not the answer to the way in which businesses have to operate now. And therefore, bringing it back to performance appraisal, the more I can get 100% of people invested in what the business is doing, which is what collaboration and employee engagement is all about, then the better off I'm going to be. And if I'm lucky enough to have some very talented people at the top of the organization, that's great. And by the way, if you track performance management bonuses, you won't be terribly surprised to find out that over a period of time, they almost exactly mirror the hierarchy of the organization. Um, And whether that's right or not, that's actually quite logical if you think about it, because you would expect the most senior people in the organization to be the ones who perform the best. Um, So there is an element of self-fulfilling prophecy in the 10-80-10 split because it mirrors to a very marked degree the hierarchical structure of an organization. That's interesting. It reminds me, we've done a number of shows on collaborative structures, um, what one person has called the collaborative operating system. And from the several people that we've talked to on this show, if you're trying to build a collaborative environment, that's what you're really genuinely looking for, you find quickly that hierarchy gets in your way. Because the notion that I have to roll this up to somebody more senior to make the decision just kills the whole notion of are we really genuinely collaborating with each other, owning the answers, owning the decisions, and so on. So there's been a lot of pressure on how would you, how else could you create a decision-making structure so we have efficiency and time gains and cost controls and all the things we need, but that's done that reinforces the collaborative work that you're trying to get done. And what you're arguing here is that the way we do performance management, the way we do grading, and the way we do payments, bonuses, is really just another vestige of the hierarchy as opposed to something that actually really drives either performance or collaborative behavior. Did I get that straight? Yes, in extremis. I mean, uh, this. Uh, I'm going to relate something that the CEO shared with us. Now, I will tell you as a precursor to the comment that he, he did have his tongue firmly in his cheek. But if you follow the logic of a 10-80 split, 10-80-10 split, and apply that to the senior management executive group, for instance, which is as legitimate a team as any other in any organization, the CEO said to us, in that case, two of my 20 people who are my direct report should be outstanding, 16 should be uh, average, and two should be fired. Um, but if I applied that logic to my senior management executive team in the way we apply it to the rest of the organization, he said, I think I'd have some really serious problems. Um, but like many things that are said partly in jest and partly tongue-in-cheek, 
there there is a very real um, and serious point that's behind that, um, and therefore, you know, irrespective of the degree to which it does damage collaboration and it does make organisations inflexible in terms of moving people around to address whatever issues come up within a, a an annual uh, period of time, the fact of the matter is that I think what makes people most cynical is that the, this sort of distribution curve is forced hierarchically down through the organization to ensure the fact that CEOs, for instance, don't have to make that kind of decision about their senior management executive. And whilst I don't anticipate any time soon that anyone would do that, uh, in a funny sort of way, I think a large number of people in organizations would kind of somehow believe that the system was fairer if the CEO had to do that to their senior management executive team. Yeah, I'd agree with that one. We'd also feel it's a lot fairer if somebody doesn't always say, well, my boss decided and I can't have no control over it. It doesn't feel very good. I want to shift gears for a minute because I know you know a lot about the Army and about um, various other places, but let's stick with the Army for a minute. There's no bonus structure in the Army. So how do they do performance conversations where we're talking about what you did, how you did it, what you need to improve, where you need to go. So that notion of the individual development or the team development, how does that get done in the Army when it's not around targets and bonuses? So I think the first thing is that the context is very much uh, closer to this idea that we now talk about in terms of agile working and collaboration. So for the, it's quite possible that an infantry regiment in the military will spend the first six months of its life on ceremonial duties at Buckingham Palace and the second six months of its life in any given year in Afghanistan on operational duty. Um, and although most organizations are not going to have to deal with something quite that severe, what it demonstrates is the need for flexibility, that you, you, you need to do whatever's in front of you in the moment. So the basic premise of the military, be it officers or the soldiers um, who officers command, is that basically you are paid a fair wage for what you do. On the premise that you are paid a fair wage, your part of that uh, psychological contract is that I will therefore do whatever is required of me to the best of my ability. And actually what's remarkable about I think the military is this idea that, um, yes, there is a, a calling and a recognition of a, a, of a greater uh, service, if you like. So I serve the military, I serve my country, and I don't need to be paid a bonus to do that. But the truth of the matter is, when you really get down to the nitty-gritty, what drives soldiers to perform well, whether they're guarding Her Majesty of Buckingham Palace or, you know, dealing with the Taliban in Afghanistan, is they are there for the guy on the right-hand side and the guy on the left-hand side. Um, and yes, it's a more extreme version of what corporations would ever have to face in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the sheer danger of it. But I've argued that the principle is, is exactly the same. If, the, if you remove the idea that somehow I'm going to get paid some extra money for doing something that nobody else does, what you end up with is a common goal, a common purpose, and most importantly, a common psychological buy-in to the idea that I am part of a team, that every one of us is equally dependent on the other, and if one of us lets the others down, it affects the team. So uh, in the classic sense of collaboration and motivating people, I would argue you can't have a stronger motivation than I'm doing this, yes, because there is a greater calling, but most importantly, because the guy on my left and the guy on my right depends on me and I depend on them. And I've often thought, you know, when I moved from the military to corporations, if you could engender that same spirit in organizations, uh, some of those organizations would be, frankly, quite remarkable. Well, we certainly see pockets of organizations that behave that way, but they're pockets. So, you know, one of my favorite things to, to point to is a call center call center that's one well that's stable where people enjoy doing the work on the call center and they're all committed there i think it's horrible work to do 
but they're there because of the camaraderie that's created among the people that they work with. And that's what keeps them staying in that. And I think we find all sorts of pockets in organizations where people say, I stay because of the people. I hear that from people I coach, even in the senior most levels, is as frustrating as my job or the demands or the crisis is at the moment. I'm here because of the people around me and not letting them down. So what I think I'm hearing you say is that what we need is a payment system that is therefore consistent with that kind of team purpose, psychological contract, if you will, dependency on each other, rather than a payment system and an evaluation system that pits one person against somebody else on the same team. That strikes me. Yes, I would agree with that. And, you know, um, if I look back on my career, if you want to see a real live example of this, um, and I would agree with you, by the way, about appearing in pockets, this happens more often than not when businesses are in serious trouble. So towards the latter end of my career, I was with two businesses that went through significant change. I mean, kind of off the scale change. What was fascinating was as soon as the company was in trouble, a number of senior people just left. They didn't have the appetite, however much they were paid, for what the business would have to go through. Some people who, who were very senior but who stayed didn't perform very well. The most remarkable thing about that scenario is a number of far more junior people simply stepped up into the positions and did what their superiors had been doing, and not once did they ever ask for an additional payment. They simply understood the totality of the situation we were in. They may or may not have been surprised by the fact that their boss sort of packed up their office and left. But I think, you know, one of the things that's not talked about often enough is what I call those unsung heroes. These are guys and women who, you know, quite often would not even be senior enough to talk about uh, in a succession planning process, for instance. But when, you know, whilst you wouldn't want to test all of this theory purely in, the ter- in terms of businesses being in serious trouble, I think you see the best of behaviors in people uh, when that kind of thing happens. And in the two companies that I was in, that happened on both occasions. Uh, as I said, some of us are highest paid and supposedly most talented people just didn't have an appetite for it or just weren't able to cope with the stress. And some people who I generically refer to as unsung heroes just stepped up and filled the gap. Right. Yeah, and I think you see that. You see that sometimes in when a new product comes out, that it's an unsung hero that really had the idea. And, you know, we have to, they weren't even in the succession planning of the talent review processes. Okay, Peter, we're almost out of time. I just want to make a connection in my own mind for some of the stuff that I'm talking about. As we, as organizations, move more towards circumstances where change on top of cha- change Dramatic change, like surviving crisis, I guess is what I'm going to say. And that's happening all over everywhere, as you well know. So we need greater flexibility than ever. And we're finding that the collaboration across pockets and across silos is what really drives performance at the end of the day. And we're also talking a lot about creating psychological safety in teams so that people are honest and candid and they tell the truth and they say what they're really worried about and they don't feel like there's anything that's going to come back to haunt them in having those sorts of conversations. And we're talking about trust. We put all of those together for what we are now believing is critical for businesses to succeed. And you can't help but ask, doesn't the performance management system now need to get upgraded to fit this new model of what we think makes for success? And I think that's what's most fascinating about the conversation today. So, Peter, thank you for being a guest Again, my guest today is Peter Wright, and Peter is now a consultant with Leadership Forum. He's also done a ton of work in helping people and organizations on a variety of issues from strategic workforce planning, integrated talent management, and performance management. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.